Well, 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 good morning, church. How are you guys doing? Okay, a few of you are doing well. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. Man, what, a, what an incredible thing it is for us to uh, gather together on this day each week in this regularity. Welcome to the gathering of the saints. Uh, something we are called and commanded to do by scripture for our good and for the glory of God. Now, I was just singing that uh, song with you guys about surrendering all, you know, and, and it feels so easy in this room, doesn't it? Like, you're just like, yes, like here I am in this room. My eyes are fixed. My mind is set. I came here to engage with you, Jesus. So here, have it all. And then tomorrow's Monday. And it feels harder on Monday and much harder by Wednesday. And by Friday, I'm like, I can't do it. And then Sunday comes around and it feels easier again. And this is the intent of the gathering of the saints. The author of Hebrews says, do not neglect gathering together as some are in the habit of doing, but come together regularly to do what? to stir one another up, spur one another on toward love and good deeds so that in regularity, we are reoriented toward the gospel, reoriented toward Jesus, that we would remember uh, each week as we gather, oh, that's right, I belong to Jesus. Oh, that's right, he is king, I am not. Oh, that's right, he is good shepherd. Oh, that's right, he has me. Oh, that's right, and so we go, because we gather up here to bring honor to one and one alone. One and one alone, and that is our savior, our God, our king, our friend, our father, our God. It is Jesus to whom all glory belongs. And gathering up regularly is where we reorient our hearts that throughout the week with lists and distractions and things kind of drift. I mean, I, I, I like you, you know, I live a regular life. I, I have a family. I have roles to play. I'm husband. I am father. I mean, father alone. Welcome to, to, to you know, Father's Day. Take a day a year and like, go dads. And, and I'm like, you know, I'll, I'll take that little moment because being a dad feels complicated and impossible and crazy. I've got to try to figure out work and time and energy and emotions and desires and then my kids and how much is too much. I need to know all the apps and what's going on and have I said enough? Have I said too much? I'm probably getting it wrong. Hats off to you dads. And that's just one role that I play. So this surrendering all, this coming, this gathering, this remembering the gospel, Welcome to the gathering of the saints where we are reoriented toward that so that we can continue to walk as people of light and life and freedom instead of being captivated, caught up in things that will take from us our well-being and the well-being of others. So Peter, uh, he's writing this letter, uh, the second letter that he's writing, uh, Second Peter, uh, to the churches that he'd written his first letter to, a, a set of churches that he has had influence over and, and is sort of a, a shepherd from Rome. He's pastoring the church in Rome at this time. Paul is also in Rome. Uh, we're in that sort of space historically uh, post the book of Acts. If you guys uh, remember or know, if you haven't been around much, we've been traveling through the scriptures from Genesis onward for about 17 years 
Hebrews now and chronologically, historically moving our way through. And we are post book of Acts in terms of history. So we are in a very interesting stage of history because this is a point where the authors of the New Testament are beginning to collectively understand, revealed by the Spirit and clearly by the circumstances that they are likely facing their last days, the end of their time on this planet. So a number of the letters we are engaged in are sort of last word letters. And as I've said many times in this particular letter, Second Peter, there is an elevated urgency when you're hearing somebody speak last words. You want to pay a little closer attention. You want to bend your ear a little more because you would expect just on a human level that with that urgency in them, they're getting down to what matters most. But this isn't just a human level. The Spirit of God is inspiring and carrying the authors of Scripture to write to us His heart through them. And so He is using Peter's stage in life to uh, elevate for us the urgency of saying, pay close attention, these things matter the most because they are the last words. And what has Peter uh, out, of, out the gates in the letter brought to the table as what matters most. And here's what he did. Remember, he's like, listen, listen, listen. The gospel of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he has done for us, who we are because of what he has done for us and our response to him out of our clarity of his mercy and grace toward us, not out of a self-generated merit system, this gospel that is ours, Men, stare into that, look into that, hold fast to that. The gospel, the truth that is the redemptive story of Jesus is everything and we must hold fast to that. Pay attention to it, know it, understand it, study it, be in it, live in it, do all of that. And then he speaks in that first chapter of this letter to the reality of our response to that, the life that we are now called into, a life of freedom and a life of light and a life of life, not bondage and darkness and death, by living out of the values and principles of the kingdom of God and of God himself. We don't live out of them because we are trying to show him how awesome we are. We live out of them because we've realized how good he is. And we're like, if he is that good, why wouldn't I follow everything he says? Because whose well-being does he have in mind? Ours and whose glory is this for? His. So I glorify him and he sets me free. This is my life. And what does Peter say? Stick with that. Pay attention to that. Do that. And we all sort of go, yes, yes. That's great, I wanna do that. And then what Peter has done is, he spent some time saying, here are some things you ought to engage in if you're gonna sustain the holding fast to the gospel. Be in community with each other and remind each other of the gospel. Because what did Peter say? Until I take my last breath, what am I gonna do? Remind you of the gospel. What should you do for each other? Remind each other of the gospel. Preach the gospel first to yourself, preach the gospel second to each other, then preach the gospel to the world that does not know it. So Peter says, do that. And then he says, be attentive and close to the spirit of God. Stay close to the vine, be close to Jesus. Your only hope is to stay close to Jesus. And then he's like, and 
What does Peter say? I trust the word of God more than I even trust what I've experienced and seen. You also ought to trust the word of God. Study it, know it, understand it. How do we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus? How do we keep our minds set on things above? How do we keep the gospel clear in our heads? How do we remember and remind each other of the gospel? By being in his word, by his spirit in community. And then the most recent context is that Peter says, okay, and there are some things that are going to come into your story. And if you are not vigilant, these are the things that will derail your holding fast to the gospel. And this is where he's entered into the idea of truth. If we pay attention to teachings that are not true and we buy into those teachings, then we will have a wrong and misguided view of the gospel, of who Jesus is, of who we are in him and of what he did. And if we have that, then the entirety of how and why we live gets skewed and the whole thing falls apart. So how important is it that we would know the truth, understand the truth, dig into the truth, be vigilant of the truth, so much so that we can recognize when it is not the truth? So three of you have got this. I love that. Three of you were like, very? But what we ought to do together is go like this, very, very. Like, be with me in this. How important is it that we know, understand, and live in the truth of God? Much better. See? And, and so what Peter has done is he's, he's now engaged in the idea of those who teach falsely. And he said, uh, the people of Israel had false prophets among them. And you all will have false teachers among you in your context, your culture, and within the church. He's speaking within the church. And so he's like, since they are false teachers among you, you got to pay really close attention. There is one king, and that is Jesus. One who needs no testing and approving, that is Jesus. The rest of us are not kings, and we need testing and approving. I and the other teachers on this stage are not your saviors or your well-being. And just because you think we teach well doesn't mean we do. You better be testing that. That's what Peter's saying. Like, you don't know unless you know. So stay in the gospel. And then as he's talking about these false teachers... And he's bringing into this the idea of sin itself that has captivated the hearts of these false teachers and they are now driven by their desires. He unpacks for us the reality and danger and horror of sin. And that's where we've spent the last couple of weeks. And we talked about the incident with the angels coming down and trying to disrupt God's plan by entering DNA into our mix and being with the ladies and having the Nephilim born. Whoa, weird. Uh, go podcast it. And then the judgment of that and the, and the sin of mankind in the flood. And then last week, Sodom and Gomorrah. Yay! We've had so much fun. Weird stories, crazy stories. But what has been their point the whole time? To call us to judgment? No. For Peter, out of his heart to do this. Please, please understand the serious nature of sin. And it's insidious horror that is out to do what? Destroy you. This is not God's rules that if you break, he gets mad and then you get in trouble. This is God keeping you and I from an insidious, dark and terrible force that is trying to destroy everything in its path called sin. And we need to think of sin not as right and wrong, but as life and death. 
when you do things opposed to God's way, the, the result of that always in some way is a version of bondage, darkness, and death. And when we do things God's way, it is always a version of light, life, and freedom as we walk. So that's what Peter's been up to. Now, he gets into a section of scripture that if you were in this conversation and you were standing in the room when Peter was actually having this conversation with a group of people, it's the kind of conversation when someone gets so like, like serious about it that they start saying stuff and you're like, you get a little uncomfortable. You're like, that sounds, whoa, whoa, settle down, Pete. Because it, it just, he's like, whoa, here we go. But understand what we're about to read. As much as it sounds and is very direct and very clear on the darkness behind the reality of false teachings and false teachers. It is out of a heart that Peter has had this whole letter to say this, please, I beg you, notice and know the dangers of believing falsely and buying into teachings that are not true because where they lead you is terrible. So be vigilant and watchful and know the truth. That's the heart of Peter. It's sort of like Peter saying this, you crossing a road and false teachings is coming your way and, and it's like a bus. What do you do when somebody is crossing a road and they don't see a bus coming? That's right, you pull your iPhone out and record it. No, that's the dark side. What you do is you do everything you can to what? Rescue them, warn them, scream, shout, get out of the way, you're gonna die. And what Peter's doing here is trying to make sure that we are clear that false teachings and false teachers and sin is not something that's not great, that should be generally avoided. It's something horrifying that's trying to kill you and me and the glory of God. And we should be very, very watchful because we want to be a people of light, life, and freedom, not bondage, death, and destruction, right? That's what Peter's doing. So let's grab the Bibles and jump on in. And now you're all set up for this crazy passage and go, okay, how serious is this going to get? Serious, buckle up. Here we go. Second Peter chapter two, we are in verse 10, halfway through verse 10. That's how they divided it up. The verses weren't part of the original. So don't worry, just when it's weird, it's weird. Um, so verse 10, halfway through, we've just come out of these three Old Testament stories and they matter because Peter ties back to them uh, in this, but here's how he starts. Uh, verse 10, halfway through, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So it's already weird. It's already weird. You're like, oh yeah, that's good. What does it mean? So first of all, who is he talking about here? Willful and bold. The false teachers. Two of you got that. Okay, false teachers. He's talking about the false teachers. These people teaching false truths, people that live in a false belief and behave out of that, these people are bold and willful. What you're gonna see Peter do right now is what seems on the outside to be uh, not great or even just fine. He's gonna pull back the curtain and say, do you, do you wanna know what's going on behind the curtain? How dark and evil evil is and how dark and evil sin is. So he starts out this way. These false teachers that are among you, 
they have in their journey of abandoning truth and pursuing their own desire have become consumed by sin. And when sin consumes, it changes us and we become so nearsighted and blind that we start desiring whatever it is we want over what is good and right and godly because it is light, life, and freedom. And that's what's happened with these guys. And it's happened to such an extent, he says, that they blaspheme the glorious ones. Not even the angels do that. And they're more powerful than the humans. Who are the glorious ones and what does this blaspheme mean? We typically, when we hear glorious one, we equate that immediately to good, to God, right? He deserves glorious, he is the glorious one. But that language is used in the scriptures in several occasions to describe the beings that if we encountered them would seem what? Glorious, So it can actually be utilized for both the dark side of the angel race or the light side of the angel race. In the book of Jude, there's only one chapter, so Jude, verse 8. The, uh, Jude actually unpacks this in more detail, uses the same language about blaspheming the glorious ones, and then gives context uh, of who the glorious ones were. And here, what he's saying is that these false teachers have become so arrogant in their assumption that they are in control of their own world, that they are ignoring and standing against the power of what sin and what the active realities of the demonic world is trying to do to them. They have basically become become people that ignore the reality of the devastating nature of sin. That's what he's trying to say here. Not even the angels dabble, play with, or ignore the power of darkness. The angels don't ignore the power of darkness, and they're plenty powerful. So it's sort of like Peter saying, who is foolish enough among you humans that think if the angels don't dabble in the darkness that you can dabble and escape. That is blasphemy of the power of the darkness in you. It is an arrogance. The point of this verse is this. These willful and bold false teachers, they are now what? They are politicians. (laughs) I mean, some... There's certainly false teachers among the politicians and false teachers among the pastors and false teachers at your workplace, right? The vigilance matters. And he says this, listen, this is what he says. Listen to me, man, these people are arrogant now. They're just arrogant. Be careful. And then look what he says next. He says, not only are they arrogant, but let's see how far their arrogance goes. He says this, but these Like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage of their wrongdoing. That's what I said to you. I said this is going to get to be an uncomfortable conversation if you were with Peter and he's talking to the congregation and he he says that and you're like, whoa, that's harsh. They are now animal-like, driven by their instincts, creatures of destruction. What is Peter doing here? Do you guys remember what he just wrote about? The three stories that he talked about? What were the three stories? He talked about the story with the angels coming down in Genesis 6 and mixing with the human race. And then he talked about the flood story where the, the nature of sin, what did he say? Do you guys remember in Genesis 6? That every thought 
and intention of the heart consistently was what? Evil. Like he's like, sin was devastating to the human race. And self-destruction was the inevitability. And God rescues us from that through this reality of his preservation through Noah and his family in the flood. And then what was the last one he talked about? Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you guys remember what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah last week when we covered it, if you were here? There were people outside of Lot's house and they wanted into Lot's house to take the people in Lot's house and abuse them. You with me so far? And there were angels inside of Lot's house and the angels blinded all the people outside of Lot's house. And we said this last week, what would you think would happen when you're outside of a house and there are beings in the house powerful enough to blind the entire crowd and you suddenly can't see? You might be wise enough to leave. And what does the Bible say they did? They clawed all the more at the door. What does that feel like and sound like to you? An animal. They were animal-like. Sin had done such a devastating work, which is what it does in our human hearts and minds when we let it be and we do not pay attention to it and we do not take it seriously and we are arrogant enough to blaspheme the power of the glorious ones, the demonic and horrid realities against us. And so we just go, I got this. And then one day suddenly we wake up and we don't even realize that the way we think is so self-driven that it is animal-like. And that's what he's saying about the false teachers. They are now like animals driven by instinct where all they are after is what they want. So when they come across whimsically and wonderfully, be careful. It is out of a motivation of grabbing what they want as though you didn't catch that so far and you're like, got it. He goes on. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. So they sit with you and they're right there. But man, listen, they are actually deceptive. And right before that, look what he writes. He writes this. They count it pleasure to reveal in the daytime or to revel in the daytime. It's interesting. Uh, This isn't Peter's intent without a doubt, but It hearkens in my mind as we try to capture through Peter's heart here the power of false teachings and their devastating reality and the power of sin. It feels vampire-like to me. That was the best word that could come to mind. They revel in the daytime, but what's actually going on? What are they after? They're after you and your soul and to abuse everything that you have and are. And they want to take it for what? For themselves. They are not about Jesus. They are not about the gospel. They are about themselves. They are like vampires. And when you're around vampires during the daytime, you've seen the movies. By the way, vampires aren't real, FYI. But you know, in the imagination stories we have, what are vampires like in the daytime? Well, in some movies they hide, but in the movies that they're out and about, the more recent ones that we have, they're wonderful, pretty looking people that look just like you and me and are just like you and me, except at night they eat us. (laughs) And that's what Peter's trying to say. Yeah, the false teachers sound great. Their teachings sound whimsical and wonderful. But if you don't understand the reality of the gospel and you miss the false nature of their teachings, where it takes you is where it's taken them. 
which is into a place where your arrogance increases, your ignorance of sin increases. You think you're fine, but you're slowly being eroded and eaten away. And eventually you start behaving fully about yourself in a way that if somebody were to see it, they're like, that's like an animal internally, not always externally, but eventually. And he's like, listen, man, I want you to understand the terrible nature of sin and of false teachings that lead to misguided truths. While they feast with you, they have eyes. Look at what he says here. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Bor, who loved gain for wrongdoing, but was rebuked by his own, uh, for his own transgressions. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So now Peter brings up another Old Testament story. Ah, another fun one to deal with. You should go read this story, man. It's crazy. Uh, it is found in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. You're welcome to go read it. And so here's how the story goes down. And it's, it's important that we touch on the story because Peter choosing this story inspired by the Holy Spirit was no accident. He is, remember, trying to make a point about the serious, erosive nature of sin and falsehood and how seriously we should take it so that we are not caught in the web and destroyed. That's what he's trying to do. It is an act of rescue, folks, not of judgment. He's like, come on, follow Jesus. You don't want to do this. So Balaam, here's what goes down. The people of Israel, uh, they come out of Egypt. God rescues them out of Egypt. And then God uh, leads them to the promised land. There's a couple of years that go by between that. They're in a desert. It's a long story for another time. But eventually they enter the promised land. Yay! And as they're heading into the promised land, the people that live there, that live opposed to the way of God, uh, they are in the process of conquering these people. Long stories. We'll talk another time. Here's what goes down. After conquering a few of the people groups, they get to this one people group called them uh, in, in Midian, called the Midianites. And their king, the king of the Midianites, he is not a fool. He is, he is not stupid at all. And, and so he realizes, uh, Balak is his name, he realizes that the people of Israel, there are millions of them, and they're going to overcome the, the area of Midian. And so he uh, c- comes up with a plan. He sends word to a guy named Balaam, whose reputation, get this, in Numbers 22, is that whoever he curses is cursed, and whoever he blesses is blessed. And so this king, smart, he's like, go get Balaam, have him come here, have him curse these people, and then when he's cursed them, then we'll attack and we'll win. And so he sends an entourage to Balaam. With, it actually literally says it in the passage with, with fees for the, for the accursing, money. And he's like, take a bunch of money, go to Balaam, say, we'll pay you to curse the people of Israel. Now here's where it gets weird. They get to Balaam and it turns out Balaam's talking to God. So I like, I don't understand how God was working in the Old Testament with his people and other people and Balaam and who the heck was Balaam and why is God talking to him? Wonderful mysteries I can't wait to discover when I leave this planet. But what we do know from scripture is that Balaam says to these, this entourage, let me go ask God if he wants me to curse these people. So he goes and asks God and God says, no, they're my people, don't curse them. 
So Balaam comes back and he says to, to the, the entourage, go back to the king and say, sorry, would love to help, but you know, God said no. So they go back to the king. And when they get back to the king, guess what the king does? Go back with more money and more incentive and ask him to come again. So they go back to Balaam a second time. And what does Balaam do? Let me check in with God, which first of all, I'm just saying there should be a little lesson there, right? We've already had the check-in. We don't need 19 check-ins on the same issue, but welcome to the human race, right? Maybe this time he'll change his mind and I can do that thing. So he checks in a second time. And this time God says to him, "Uh, if you think you need to go, then go. And that's what gets weird sometimes in these stories because you're like, God said go. And then when he went, God was mad. That's weird. No, no, no. God's doing that parent thing again. What do you do when a kid comes to you third, fourth time asking the same question and you sort of get down and you say, if you think this is a good idea after the conversations we've had and I've already said, no, don't do it, you feel free. And if the kid's like, yay, dad said yes. You're like, no, 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 I didn't. So God is really gracious. Balaam goes, maybe I'll go this time. He's not gonna curse the people. He's just gonna go check out and see what the king has to say. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see why the story is a story that represents the beauty of how we dabble in sin and our arrogance? And we're like, just a little closer. I'm still with you, God, just a little closer. Can I just go? So Balaam goes to the king, right? And, the, and on his way, here's what goes down. On his way, Um, God says, I'm going to stop him. So just think about God's grace here. Balaam's going to get himself into a ton of trouble because he's going to do foolish and nearsighted and blind things. And so God's grace toward Balaam is, I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen. So he puts a giant angel on the road, but Balaam can't see the angel, but the donkey that he's riding can. I know. So the donkey, smart donkey, goes, I'm not walking to that guy with the big sword. You can go read it. I'm not making this up. And the donkey diverts off the path and Balaam can't see the angel. So Balaam beats the donkey and the donkey goes around. The angel gets back on the path. So God says to the angel, go a little further down the road, block him again. And the donkey sees the angel. Donkey does the same thing. And Balaam's like, get back on the road, you foolish donkey. And then the angel stands in a narrow gap where the donkey can't get past. So the donkey just stops and goes, I ain't going through there. He hasn't talked yet. He's just kind of thinking this in his head. And then Balaam beats the donkey again. And God, God says, okay, all right. And for a moment, God does a supernatural thing. There are supernatural things that happen in the Bible. And the donkey actually talks with a human voice, says to Balaam, why are you hitting me, man? (laughs) And the funny thing is, the funniest thing in the whole story is, and it'd probably be the same for you. You just are not even thinking about it. So you talk back to the donkey. You don't go, What? Balaam says, because you're a fool and you're not moving forward. And the donkey's like, do you see what's in front of us? And Balaam's like, no. And God opens Balaam's eyes to the angel and Balaam realizes what's been going on. Do you think if you were in that boat, you might catch a clue at this point that God's saying, this is not a good idea for you. You should go back where I told you to stay in the first place. Balaam doesn't do that. The story unfolds. That thing goes away. I wonder at what point Balaam woke up one night and went, did the donkey talk to me? Because it doesn't actually happen here because you have to see sees the angels. That's more shocking than a talking donkey. And so the whole thing gets confusing for Balaam as well. Balaam ends up going to the king. So the king offers him a ton of resources and Balaam goes to go curse the people. And he still asks God, which is the weird thing in all of this. Cause you're like, now you're just doing what you want, but you're still like pretending that you're like, I want to do your will, but kind of my way. None of us have ever done that. I know. And so he goes to curse the people so he can get the resources. And you know what God does? 
he puts other words in Balaam's mouth and a blessing comes out of his mouth over the people of God. So Balaam's like, all right, king, I got this. Blessing! And the king's like, what are you doing? I need to defeat them. You're supposed to curse them, not bless them. And Balaam's like, yeah, sorry about that. Didn't go so well. So he tries a second time and God changes his words and he blesses the people again. And he tries it a third time and God changes his words and he blesses the people again. And after the third time, the king's like, go away, this is crazy, right? So all this time, all this time, do you see God's grace? Even in Balaam's foolishness to try to do the opposite of God, God is still engaged and going, I'm gonna redirect this. But what Peter is trying to remind us of, and these people he wrote to would have understood this context, is that when we are arrogant enough to dabble in falsehood or dabble in sin, we will eventually find ourselves lower than the animals. Isn't it funny that he chooses a story where an animal has to talk to a human? And he just said, what did the false teachers become? Animal-like. So he's literally saying, no, 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 not animal-like. So blinded, so deceived, so arrogant that God actually has to make you lower than the animals so the animals have to tell you to stop it. What, what is Peter trying to do here? He's trying to remind us how dangerous is sin. Two of you got it. I love that story. But the other bunch of you didn't. How dangerous is sin? Very. We should not play around with the terrible nature of sin. Sin is not about right and wrong. It's about life and death. When we're choosing God's way, we're choosing life. And when we're choosing our way, we're choosing death. Not right, not wrong, life and death. And that's what Peter's trying to say. And so he uses the story. Now, here's the crazy part about Balaam. So Balaam ends up, we find out in Exodus, I'm sorry, not Exodus, Numbers chapter 31, there's an incident that takes place there with the Midianites. They finally overcome them. And we find out there that what Balaam did is before he left, he went to the king of the Midianites and he said to him, look, I've tried to curse them three times, hasn't worked, but I do know a way that you can get God to curse them. If you entice them with the desires of their hearts, send your woman their way, send your resources their way, give them the things that the human wants, they will end up choosing their way over God's and then God will curse them. And that's exactly what the king of the Midianites do. do. And guess what the people of God do? They choose God's way. That's right. No. No, they choose their way. And because of that, they go through this whole incident of experiencing some of the death and destruction that comes with sin. And it's not till Numbers 31, where later on they're able to actually conquer the promised land in the Midianites. And then, this is so crazy, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. Revelation! This is the last book in the Bible. Uh, Balaam comes up again. And the author of Revelation says, John says this, to one of the churches that God is writing a letter to and God's speaking. It's like, I have this to hold against you. You are buying into the way of Balaam again. And what did Balaam do? Balaam convinced the king to entice the people of God into sin so that they will experience death and destruction. And the people of God bought in and they experienced death and destruction. Do you see what Peter's trying to do here? Please, Peter is saying, Please, please take seriously the truth of God. Take seriously the gospel. Know it and understand it so that your belief is rightly placed on what is true and not on teachings that are false. 
if you are going to be able to recognize false gospels and false teachings, you're going to need to know the real one. And how many of us really know the real one well enough to recognize the false ones? Do you know what a prosperity gospel is? And we all nod together. I read it in an article once. That sounds familiar. Do you know what a a poverty gospel is? Do you know what a legalistic gospel is? Do you know what a lawless gospel is? Do you know what a a gospel is that misuses grace? Do Do you know all of these? Would you recognize them if you saw them? You're like, oh yeah, the prosperity one, that's the guy with the Learjet, right? (laughs) Yeah, there's extreme versions of these kinds of gospels, but it's not the extreme versions I'm worried about. They're plain as day. It's the subtle little ones that show up in the parking lot and reveal that you or I hold a gospel that is not fully true. What do you mean, Renaud? When you walk out into that parking lot and you see people getting into different vehicles and some of those vehicles seem to be cheaper and seem to be expensive and you say the people with the expensive ones must not understand what it is to serve God because they spend more money. You have a poverty gospel and you don't understand the beauty of stewardship of both poverty and prosperity. But if you're like, if I just live a life with some merit that shows God that I'm good, then he'll give me fill in the blank. For some, it's uh, some, some good resources, friends, and happiness, or whatever it is. That's a merit-based system. It's a prosperity gospel, and it's not good. If I behave rightly, then God will not punish me, or God will give me that prosperity gospel. I can go on and on with gospels. That's not the point. Peter's point is this. If you don't know the real gospel, who Jesus really is, what he's really done for you, who you really are now, and why you should live his way, not out of obligation or self-righteousness, but out of a response of worship and awe of how good he is, then you are susceptible to false teachings from false teachers, and you will quietly erode until you are like them, arrogant and animal-like, bent on your own desires with death, destruction, and bondage as your friend. Boy, Renault, I came to church today and this feels very heavy. Yes, in the same way that it would feel like if you were crossing a road and a bus was coming and I pummel you from the back and you get up off the ground and you're like, what on earth did you just do? I mean, I'm bleeding. I hit the ground. Are you out of your mind? And I go, did you see the bus? And you go, no. And I'm like, that would have hurt more. (laughs) And that's what Peter's doing. If I don't bring this to your table and you are susceptible to these things, that will hurt more than my hard words. Folks, God loves us. He's trying to rescue us from sin, not tell us what's right and wrong. And if we obey, he gives us what we want. He's not about saying, do this, otherwise I'm mad. He's saying, this stuff, sin, is insidious, terrible, and dark. Don't be arrogant enough to think that it's not. And when people teach falsely or you buy into false teachings, that leads you to live in a place where this is going to happen. Don't do that. So people here, we want to be a people that dig deeply into this beautiful, supernatural, and incredible thing, that understand it well, that understand the simplicity and complexity of the gospel. And if you are a person that says, I'm not sure, then what is Peter trying to say to you and I? Then get sure. Start talking. Start digging. Start getting into this. Because if you don't, you are vulnerable to the dangers of a culture with a thousand false teachings coming at us that produce false truths and a church that is doing the same. And if you say, well, I'm glad ours isn't, I certainly hope you're right. I really do. 
but it's not up to me to determine that for you. It's up to you to test and approve what I'm preaching and determine that for yourself. I am no more a person that you should go, I trust Renault, I trust Brady, I trust Joel, they're awesome. I hope we are doing a great job that is truthful, but I can't test that for you. You have to test that for yourself. So if you're here and you're counting on me to test everything for you, then I might be the problem. And you don't want that. What God says is this, there is only one you can trust fully. Who is he? Jesus. All the other folks... Watch them carefully. And if they're not teaching the right gospel, then engage. I am also held to that standard. And it's us collectively that hold each other to those standards. Know the gospel. Recognize false ones. Stay away from them. They're dangerous. And sin is about what? Life and death, not right and wrong. It's much more terrible than right and wrong. It's life and death. Choose God's way, not yours. And life, light and freedom will be yours. Let's be people of the light, people of life, people of freedom. And let us carry that light, life and freedom where? Into the world so they might also know Jesus and know the light, life and freedom that he is. Do not be nearsighted, but see and trust Jesus and follow him. And yours will be life, light and freedom. Let's pray. God, thank you for this incredible letter that you inspired Peter to write in a time in his life where he knew it was coming to an end. And thank you that his big urgency was know the gospel, remind each other of the gospel, live out of the gospel, and be very careful not to believe other gospels. God, may we take seriously his charge to us not as one that is about obligation on our part to get this right, but as one that Peter's heart and your heart through Peter is coming out for our well-being, our rescue from the insidious nature of sin and the powers behind it. May we not be an arrogant people who ignore those things that are not your way in us, and think we've got this, but may we constantly, Spirit of God, draw near to you and trust you to show us in ourselves and around us where we are living in a way that is not in congruency with the values of your kingdom and your ways. And may we come to you by your power to see those things transformed because God, we wanna be a people of light, a people of life, people of freedom and we want to carry that light life and freedom into the world on your behalf for your glory we do not want to be a people of willful arrogance believing that we can get away with things that are our own and sin will not have its way with us help us to remember how insidious sin is and help us to be vigilant and help us to know how insidious false teachings are to the gospel. And help us to be vigilant so we might be a people that hold fast to the confession of our faith as you told us to in Hebrews and gather together regularly to be stirred up toward love and good deeds to live the life you've called us to live on this planet, loving you with all our heart and loving each other because you loved us. Show us the way. Keep us safe. 
lead us. In Jesus' name, amen.